so you will notice we did not leave. Well, the, the girls left. The boys stayed. Um, this is, this is d for a reason. Uh, we felt like with the sensitivity of the subject today and in a radical departure from where we just were in worship, we felt it appropriate to kind of help Mike's message along a little bit. And so just to lean into the subject matter, we have prepared a little something, the guys in the band here, to sort of get us ready for the subject matter. So here we go. I've been really trying, baby Trying to hold back this feeling for so long And if you feel like I feel, sugar Come on, wow, come on Yeah, I appreciate that setup. We'll talk tomorrow. Um, <laughs> hey, thanks for joining us this morning. If this is your first time with us here in the room, if it's your first time with us here online, thanks for joining us. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And I want to give a couple special shout-outs. One is to Dalton, who, when you see him, he's typically, uh, when you see him up on the platform, he's, in the drum, he's on our drums. But this morning, he is on a ride called the Tour de Gem. Uh, and he's raising awareness and funds for We Care uh, Arts here in Dayton. And what's interesting, he told me that he's got love God, love people on his arms today while he's riding his bike. And dude, I'm telling you, you better be listening only, not watching this while you're riding your bike. Uh, and a special shout out to Mel. I was just talking to your daughter who's here this morning, and she told me that you would be watching as well. So wanted to give a special shout out to her as well. Hey, uh, you're catching us in a series of messages that we call, uh, The More Things Change, The More They uh, Stay the Same. And we're walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth uh, and learning about how to be disciples while looking at some of their struggles, which is why we're calling this series what we, what we are, because first century church, 21st century church, but we're finding that the more things change, right, the more they stay the same. So uh, just a little bit of back, uh, background for you to catch everybody up. Paul took three missionary journeys in his lifetime around the Mediterranean world. He was planting churches. He was preaching the gospel everywhere he went. He plants a church in the city of Corinth, and he stays there about 18 months, teaching them, helping them grow. And then he, he took off and completed his missionary journey. We've, now, MCC, just so that you know, we've been around 69 years, and we've had plenty of time to get to the point where uh, we, we, we can mature a lot. We, we can grow. The Corinthian church had been around for three. So I just want to make sure you understand that. And Christianity has now been around a little over 2,000 years, and it's had an enormous influence on the world that we live in, so much so that if you're sitting here today, whether you are following Jesus with everything that you have, or if you're still trying to figure out who he is and what place he's going to have in your life, you have been, regardless of where you sit, you have been directly influenced by the work of Jesus and his church. Most of the hospitals, I don't know if you know this, most of the hospitals uh, in the United States trace their roots back to a church seeing a need in their community, and they just did something about it. Our colleges, many universities, originally opened as uh, seminaries with the sole purpose of training preachers 
and missionaries, even many of our, most of our Ivy League schools. Our concept of equality, regardless of gender or race or nationality, that concept started with Jesus. The church in Corinth, they knew nothing about that. The first century really didn't know a whole lot uh, about that. For them, uh, you know, it, we, we've benefited from these 2,000 years of influence. Jesus comes onto the scene uh, with this culture and basically just flips it upside down. But for them, it's been about 20 years since this guy named Jesus shows up and this movement called Christianity started. So they know something that we don't know. They know what life was like, what culture was like before Jesus And it's still affecting them as a church. They're not only learning how to follow Jesus, they're trying to figure out how not to to just go to church, but how to be the church in their world. And because of their background and the newness to the faith, the culture that they lived in, one of the areas that they were confused about was sex and marriage. How are we supposed to think about this as disciples of Jesus? And they were asking some pretty specific questions about this area. So Paul is going to address this. As a matter of fact, Up to this point, as we've seen, Paul is addressing reports that he has received about the church. In chapter 7, he begins to answer questions that they have given to him. And it may surprise you, but God has a lot to say about the subject of sex. Now, it shouldn't surprise us because God thought it up, and he thought it was a good idea, and this is an area where most of us would agree with God, right? The problem is God's voice on this subject is often distorted, if it's listened to at all. And I want to say up front that I know that this has been an area of life where some of us have been hurt. There are some of us that maybe you were a victim of sexual assault, or maybe you trusted someone in this area of your life and they proved to not be trustworthy. Or maybe you gave this part of you away outside of God's plan. You know, the abuse of sex was in their world, it's in our world, and it's in our world. It's in our families. And I'm sorry that you were hurt, and I know that it makes it difficult to hear a message about the blessing that God has intended for this gift in our lives. And we're inundated with messages and images about sex all the time in our culture. We're not sure we want to hear about it in the church. But again, God has this great deal of wisdom to give us. And it's important for us to know what God intends for our good. So we're going to see that today. Now, a friend reminded me recently uh, of this idea. So I want you to know that if at any point this morning things start to get uncomfortable, because we're going to talk about some things that We can't believe the Bible talks about. We're not sure we do want to talk about them when we're together. So I brought these sunglasses with me. Uh, We're going to call them the invisible glasses. And when I put them on, right, when things get a little uncomfortable, I'll put these on and I'll pretend I can't see you and you pretend that you can't see me, okay? We're good. So in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have your Bible with you, you version Bible app, uh, Paul says this, here's the way you used to think about sex. It used to be different right? It it, it used to not be that different from the culture around you, but now, now there's this distinct difference, and there should be. And here's the challenge. We, We don't have the questions that Paul was asked. We only have his answers to those questions. So this morning is a little bit like Jeopardy in that we have to sort of come up with what the questions were from what Paul says. So verse one, he says, now for the matters you wrote about, so here's the first thing they they ask him about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In some versions, uh, verse 1 reads, it's good for a man not to marry. Literally, those words are, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, which is, of course, a euphemism for sexual relations. So look at verse 1 again. Uh, You see the punctuation there. There's a colon, so hang on to your colon. Uh, So literally it reads, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And we can just sort of stop there and see what happens to our attendance next week. Uh, Probably most men wouldn't come back. I'm not sure I would come back uh, if that was it. What does, but why does Paul say that? So we're going back to the colon. Remember, Paul is simply restating the conclusion that the church has reached. As disciples of Jesus, the best thing for us to do is just to swear off sex altogether. But I want to be real clear, and this is in the notes because I want to make sure you get this. What Paul, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is restating what they have asked him. They've said this, and Paul is restating it. So from verse 1, the question appears to be about perception. As disciples of Jesus, how are we to perceive sex in a way that honors God? How do we, how do we view this? I mean, is celibacy more spiritual than marriage? Is it better to just have nothing to do with sex? And this question arises from a suggestion from Corinth that if married people are really to be Christians, they have to abstain from sex. So I want you to keep in mind two things. Number one, keep in mind where they lived. And remember, I told you last week that Corinth was the home of the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, the availability, the acceptance of sex with no restraints was part of this city. It was accepted and expected of those who lived there. The city had a reputation even among pagans uh, for sexual immorality and religious prostitution. So in their culture, sex was closely associated with false gods and with idolatry. So for them, this whole area, I mean, it's really a, it's a challenge. They could not associate sex with anything that was good or godly. So keep in mind the, the time in which they live. Keep in mind also where we live. We live in a very sex-saturated society. It's everywhere. It's used to sell everything. Last week, we talked about pornography, and we saw how it warps and damages what God intended sex to be. On top of that, many, if not most of us, grew up with some faulty ideas about sex, some harmful ideas, some inaccurate ideas. So as a result, almost everyone has hidden hurts when it comes to sex and sexuality and hidden shame and unresolved guilt and and unresolved resentment about something maybe that has happened to us. In essence, they said, Paul, sex is all around us in this culture. Some of us have had some bad experiences with it. We've, we've heard you say how wrong it is, so we've come to this conclusion that sex can't possibly be good or pure or, or holy, so we're, we're just going to swear it off altogether. And Paul says, listen, that's not what I'm saying at all about this. The Bible tells us that sex is a gift from God. They just we're having difficulty thinking that way about it. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of people today. I wonder how many people we know grew up in a home where, listen, your parents never talked to you uh, about sex. And, and even now it feels uh, uncomfortable and somehow inappropriate because, you know, sex doesn't seem like something that is good or godly. And we sure as the world don't want to be talking about it in church. I can't believe we're talking about it in church. So you grew up with this idea and you got married And it's something you endure, but it's not something that you embrace as a gift. 
But I just want to tell you, that was never God's plan. If you go all the way back to the beginning in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked without, and were without shame and embarrassment. So when it's in the context of marriage between a husband and wife, I just want to let you know it's a beautiful thing. The second question Paul seems to be answering has to do with attitude. It's in verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have the authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. So make sure you catch the attitude there in verse 3. It's wrapped up in the word duty. He speaks about the way you think. As a disciple of Jesus, what is my attitude toward sex? So is my attitude toward sex that it's more of a chore than a gift? You know, and I, when our attitude is that sex is a duty, that it's an obligation, it's a chore, right? Do the dishes, check, fold the laundry, check, had sex with my spouse, check, right? That's the problem. We see this as less of a gift and more kind of like a job that we have to do. Look at how the message uh, paraphrases this. By the way, these are verses I share with couples when I'm doing premarital counseling with them, usually followed by the comment, can you believe the Bible even talks about this? So look, check this out. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. And then check out this last sentence. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. My guess is that's kind of the opposite of how most people have been taught to think about sex. You know, one problem we face when we think about sex is that we, we think that it is, it's very selfish because sex is something to satisfy my needs. It's something to satisfy my wants and, and my desires and my cravings. And Paul says this is exactly the opposite of that. This is an opportunity for you to express your love and affection for your spouse. Uh, and this is an opportunity for you to ask this question, how can I serve you, right? In other words, living on mission means that my attitude towards sex is that this is an area where I can serve my spouse. And I just want to say this, and it's going to come off a little bit harsh. There's a problem in your marriage if you don't receive joy from seeing your spouse receive pleasure. I just want that. And husbands, notice the order of that. First, the instruction for us as husbands is to see that we satisfy our wives. And so why don't husbands and wives do this? Well, selfishness is one of the reasons. Another is that husbands and wives underestimate the importance of sexual intimacy in their marriage. If it's just another chore that we have to do, we're totally missing out. The Hebrew word for sex is the word doubt. It's a, it's a mingling of the souls. That's what that word means. God gave us this gift of intimacy as a mingling for the souls and uh, for husbands and wives. So living on mission means that my attitude is that I understand the importance of this in my marriage. And because we underestimate the importance of this, we don't give this the attention and the creativity and the passion that it deserves. Don't underestimate, right, the importance of this in your relationship. So one more, I want to give you one more reason. It's communication. Communication is really important. It's amazing as much as sex is talked about in our culture, how rarely it's talked about in our marriages. So you need to speak clearly about what it is that you like and what you don't like and what your needs are. And wives, husbands will never tell you this, and so I'll say this for them, right? 
We have no idea what we're doing, and, and, and we need your help. Don't underestimate the need for clear communication. And you know what? It's awkward. I know that it can be. But communication is really important. In uh, verse 5, we read this. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you can devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So lastly, he addresses uh, in verse 5, it's, it's about behavior, how our perception of and our attitude toward this part of our marriage uh, relationship, how it affects our behavior. So here's the question. How often should a married Christian couple be involved sexually? I know, right? Who knew that was in the Bible? Uh, so I read that on most marriage websites. This is actually the most common question asked by married couples. What's, what's normal when it comes to frequency? And so he says, there needs to be some mutual consent and only for a short time so that Satan won't tempt you. So if our perception is that this is a gift from God and our attitude is that this is one way that I get to serve my spouse... And we understand the importance of this in our marriage, this, this mingling of souls. This question gets answered. Sarah Egriches, who, along with her husband, wrote the book Love and Respect, which, by the way, when Rich, our executive pastor, does premarital counseling, that's the book he walks couples through. Um, she says that Paul says each to fulfill their duty to the other. Husbands particularly can come under satanic attack when deprived of sexual release. She writes, wives uh, might be able to better understand this if they think about how they would feel if their husbands only wanted to talk or listen to them once a week or a couple times a month. Being deprived of emotional release would make most women miserable. And then she talks about a time where she's teaching through this at a, at a conference, and a young woman comes up to her afterwards. She's married and has children, and she said to Sarah, I got to tell you what happened this past Sunday. I called my mom on Sunday afternoon, and I said, hey, mom, this Sunday, uh, my family is not going to be able to come over, because they would usually go over to her parents' house for Sunday afternoons. Uh, and her mom, who's in her late 60s, says, well, why can't you come over? What's going on? And her daughter said, well, if you really want to know, my husband's moping around and feeling all sorry for himself because we haven't been intimate for more than a week. She said her mom didn't hesitate at all in her response. She's in her 60s, right? And she said... Honey, you should be ashamed of yourself. Why would you deprive him of something that makes him so happy and takes such a short amount of time? And her daughter said, Mom, I can't believe you just said that. And then she thought to herself, you know, my mom's been married for 47 years. And I don't know anyone who has a happier marriage than she does. So Paul doesn't give a number <laughs> because it's different for each of us, right? Different seasons of life, different scenarios. But what he does do is he gives us a couple of principles that we can uh, answer this question with. The first is the principle of mutuality. Paul says just don't, don't, deprive, don't deprive each other. In your relationship, you don't have the right to demand sex from your spouse, but neither do you have the right to withhold sex from them either. He's encouraging us to be in tune, this mingling of souls. The second principle is a principle of need. And Bob Russell, who is a pastor in Louisville, put it this way, if you're not sharing love in your marriage, you're sending a starving person out into the world, which is a food court with luscious aromas beckoning and many shops offering free samples. Hey, listen, I know, I know this has been awkward this morning, 
I don't think I've heard a peep about sex in church growing up other than, hey, just don't do it, right? And that was kind of what we heard. But I'm willing to bet the house that either you or someone that you know is struggling in this area of their life. And they've got to hear this. Because here's the thing. God knows what's best for you in your marriage, whether it's communication or parenting or listening or finances or sex. God is the creator, and he knows what is best if we will listen to him. He loves you, and he wants what is best for you. So keep your mind pure. Be careful about what you're putting in it. And that's why this Wednesday, by the way, we're going to be talking about gender identity. So if you have any questions or want to know what God says about this, uh, I hope you'll register to join Eric and I. Again, this Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8, we'll have children's ministry options for birth through uh, fifth grade. I hope you'll join us for that. Uh, Save sex for marriage. This is clearly God's plan for our best. Recognizing that in our world that, that, that we live in, it's difficult to do that just like it was in Corinth when Paul was talking to them. If you're married, maybe it's about adjusting your perception. Maybe it's about changing your attitude or just making the decision today to be aware of your spouse's needs. So in the notes, I put this quote by Max Max Lucado. He said, if God is able to place the stars in their sockets and suspend the sky like a curtain, do you think it's remotely possible that God is able to guide your life If God is mighty enough to ignite the sun, could it be that he's mighty enough to light your path? If he cares enough about the planet Saturn to give it rings or Venus to make it sparkle, is there an outside chance that he cares enough about you to meet your needs? And listen, I just want to make sure you hear this. God loves you. He does. He he loves you. He loves you and wants what's best for you. You're his child. You're his child, and he's given us gifts that he wants you to enjoy. So please accept those words. You're special to him. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. And each week we come back to a moment in history where we remember that he didn't just say that. He proved it on the cross. He proved that Our forgiveness was worth his life. And and he proved that he will not allow our enemy to take what he has given to us as a gift to be cherished and honored and a chance to serve our spouse and turn it into something that's ugly and cheap and dirty. And I realize this may seem like an odd message to go into communion after, but there isn't any part of your life that doesn't belong to him. And so we bring this part of who we are to him for forgiveness if needed, for protection from our enemy, and as a means of surrendering to him, our king, surrendering to our king all of who we are. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to pray And then we're going to uh, take the emblems that remind us of Jesus' body and blood given for us, which is a way of remembering, but it's also a way of recommitting to him our lives as disciples of Jesus. So let's pray. God, we, man, sometimes it's surprising what you say in your word. 
and you address areas of our life that, quite frankly, it's a little embarrassing to talk about. We don't necessarily like talking about it with our earthly parents. We certainly don't want to talk about it with you. And yet you have given us guidance. You have given us a path that if we choose to walk, it will bring the best for us. And for those of us who have wandered off that path for a bit and are trying to find our way back on, maybe even this morning, Father, you love us so much. You gladly welcome us back. And you want, you still want what's best. And you can take whatever the situation is and you can make it for our good, for the good of your kingdom. And so, God, we give you this moment now for those who are single and are called to wait, for those who are married and are called to think of their spouse before they think of themselves. As your church, we give this moment to you. And as members of your kingdom, subjects of the king, sons and daughters of the king, we bow our knee to you in reverence respect and obedience. So we're grateful for this moment and we pray that it will honor you with how we respond to what your word has said to us. So thank you, Holy Spirit. Guide us in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we take the the bread that reminds us of the body that was given to us, given for us. No one took Jesus' life from him. They couldn't unless he freely laid it down. And he did, because he loves us. And so we remember. And so we take the juice that reminds us of his blood that was spilled for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and yet it still calls to us to follow him yet today as his kids, as his friends, that we would follow after him, and so we remember. Father, we pray for your help. Much like the Corinthians found themselves. We find ourselves in a world that is surrounded, saturated with sex and the enemy has somehow taken this gift that is a beautiful mingling of souls and turned it into something that is selfish and barely recognizable as a gift from you to your kids. And so we pray as your children that we will reclaim that. We will recognize what you have given to us and the good that it is for our souls, for our marriages, for our families. That when children grow up in a home where mom and dad love each other and look out for each other and care for each other more than they care for themselves, that 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 says something. Those actions say more than our words ever could. And so we pray, Jesus, today.
that wherever we have been in this area of our lives, for those of us who need to seek forgiveness today, God, that, that we would do that. For those who need to uh, ask for wisdom and guidance and strength to be on the right path with you, that we would get that. And so, Father, I, in this next moment, I, and I just pray that you would continue this prayer to him and talk to God about where you are in this area of your life and in following.